Well, if you've been journeying uh, with us, you may be aware that we have been in a study of the life of David now for some 18 weeks. Today is week 19, and next week will be the last week uh, in this series as we wrap it up. And this morning, we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 22. And I just want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, digitally or otherwise, that you might want to just have it open there. As I make reference to various verses, you may want to, to read them yourself to make sure that they are indeed there. But if you have your Bibles, it might say that this is David's song of thanksgiving. If you're a reader of the Bible, uh, we've been sharing a Bible reading plan, encouraging to read. Uh, this week, we've been in 1 Samuel, and we've, I've been kind of rereading some of the history of the early uh, parts of David's life that we've already covered, so it was kind of a, an interesting timing in that note. But if you go through the Psalms, you may come across Psalm 18 and go, this sounds kind of vaguely familiar. Well, Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are virtually identical word for word, and it's assumed that the narrator that gathered this information together about David's life here in First and Second Samuel put this here for a, a specific reason. It's kind of a, a bit of a summary. It encapsulates his entire life and kind of the, uh, the high points and maybe even the low points to a certain degree. But it's not just a song of thanksgiving. It really is a prayer. It's a powerful prayer. I would even say an exuberant prayer and, and likely uh, something that uh, David would maybe sing out as he was praying this uh, particular uh, passage. And you can almost imagine David shouting some of this as he expresses his own astonishment at the goodness and greatness of his own experiences of the God who chose him to be king. And this is the particular principle that I want us to learn from this text today. Because just like David, what we know about God is ultimately shaped by our experiences with God. And in some ways, our experiences with God are shaped by what we know to be true about God. In other words, there needs to be a connection between our heads and what we know to be true about God and our hearts, what we experience in our everyday lives. We have to kind of get what's in our heads, sometimes to our hearts, and then experience in our hearts what's, what's in our heads. So one kind of informs the other. And it's like we sang this morning, in the song Waymaker, even when I don't feel it, that's kind of a, a heart or a, an emotional kind of response. Like, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Why can we say that? Because we know this to be true about God, is that he's, in so, he's sovereign, he's in control of all things. He never takes a nap. He doesn't, he doesn't just kind of say, oh, I'm going to take a day off today. He is always at work. It's just sometimes we don't see it. We don't feel it. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout this series is that it's really not so much about the life of David as it is about God and about David's experience with God. And what does David's story and faith reveal to us about who God is? And this passage and this chapter in particular certainly teaches us a few really important things about God and how we need to respond to Him. So, what do we know about God intellectually, and how then do we live out that truth every day? Well, let me give you three things today that you can just hopefully tuck away and keep as a, as a reminder. 
The first thing that we learn from this passage is that God is personal and He's present. He's personal and He's present, and we might even add, and He protects, as we'll see. And so these are the opening seven verses of, uh, of this passage, 2 Samuel verse 22. And in it, David expresses in very descriptive language his experience with God. And it's clear that David, as a man after God's own heart, always had this present awareness of God. It's kind of like what Anna was talking about in the spotlight this morning, this realization that God is always with us and we can pray at any time, all the time. You might even say that David was immersed by God. He very much had this God awareness and presence in his life. And he uses some very descriptive metaphors then to write about his experience with God. And the primary theme here in these opening verses is really one of protection. That his God is one who makes and keeps him safe. And there's really a flurry of images. Since it wasn't read, let me just read a little bit for you. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior, and you save me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. For the waves of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The the snares of death confronted me. And so you get this sense that he uses all of these very descriptive words like rock, which what? Shelters us from danger. And when we think rock, we shouldn't think like, you know, stone or one of the, one of the stones that he used to, to take out Goliath. No, think and picture kind of a, a rocky cliff, something that would be relatively difficult to get to, make it somewhat inaccessible. And so, so he pictures God like this place of safety and security on the rock. And then he refers to God as my fortress. So this, what, what do we, what image comes to mind when we think of fortress, right? It's strong and it's secure. uses the word, he's my shield. Well, we know that, that warriors would have a shield that protects from spears and swords. That he's my stronghold, he says, which is really a place high above and far away from some of the dangers and threats. And when you have a stronghold, you know that it is a place to retreat to and find safety. And he talks about my refuge and my deliverer, which really are then all summed up really in one word, Savior. Savior. Because at the end of the day, that is who God is. The other thing to note that this God is not just some abstract God, but he's very personal to David. Did you notice that even as I read that many times it wasn't just the descriptive word that he used for God. He says, but he's my rock. He's my shield. He's my stronghold. And David's personal experience with God was that God kept him safe from these very real dangers. Verse 3, he says, you save me from violence. Or verse 4, I was saved from my enemies. And so, Here David is really describing his own practical experience. He says, I called to the Lord and I was saved. Those of us who've followed along now know exactly what he's talking about and who he's talking about. He's referring back to the times of Goliath and the Philistines and Saul and most recently his son Absalom. 
And God did indeed on numerous occasions save him from violence. Got me thinking that if I was to write about my own experience with God, how would I do that? I mean, don't we all have shared experiences with God? I don't know if you're a journaler or a writer or a poet or what gift God has given you to put into words your experiences with God. But when has God been real and present in your life? That when you were, if you were to take some time to sit down and write as David, this is who God is to me. For me, I can remember a few occasions where I feel like God absolutely protected me from significant harm. I know everybody probably has a story of a, of a near miss or fatal accident. Is that true? I think everybody's maybe had some experience on an icy road where you're just like, wow, I can't believe we survived that. Yeah, because God had his hand on you. In my case, those of you who are familiar with some of the Edmonton geography can probably picture this, 76th Avenue, going down through Mill Creek Ravine, you go down and then back up, um, and kind of between like 89th Street and uh, the Ritchie Market, if you guys have been around, around there, kind of an up-and-coming trendy, trendy area. But I remember I was coming home from university one afternoon because we lived in that area. And it was uh, middle of January. The sun had been shining. Uh, It had melted a little bit enough onto the road. But then when the sun went behind the trees, the shade, it froze. I came over the hill. I hit black ice. And so I'm going downhill. Car is picking up speed as I'm going down the hill. And I'm completely out of control. Nothing's going to stop it except for potentially one of the other cars that are coming up. And I remember just one car after another, like just bracing for the impact as it passed, as it passed, as it passed, and just having this sense of relief that I I wasn't going to get hit until I got hit. And I had turned sideways and was going north on a road that was heading east and uh, hit the car, spun out, both cars were totaled, and I walked away. Interesting thing is, is they had one-way traffic then through there, and my mom and dad drove through there a little bit later, and they're like, that's Norb's car, you know, and they parked at the top and came down and checked on me and everything, but the reality was, is if I didn't get hit by that car at that point, I would have driven right off the edge and down into the creek bed itself, probably a 20-foot drop at that point or something like that. Had another occasion coming back from Kelowna Reading Week. Do you remember Reading Week in university when you'd go skiing and golfing in the same week? You can do that in the Okanagan in late February. And uh, um, we were coming back and we were just, just west of Jasper. My friend was driving. We're in his sports car. Spins out of control. We hit a side bank. And I have that. It's still in my mind. Like this is like almost 30 years ago. Complete 180, upside down, and thinking, we're going to land on our roof and we're going to be crushed to death. Flipped right around and landed on all four tires, facing the other direction. Remember, the first thing I did was kind of feel my face and look at my hands to see if there was any blood, and then I jumped out and we flagged down the car. We walked away from, from that. We probably all have stories like that. And there's probably many more that, that you, you can add. And it's not that God in those moments isn't sovereign and that not in those moments that something really terrible could have happened. But I can look back on those moments in my life and see that was God's hands of protection, that he looked after me in those moments. And it's life events like this 
that cause me to look back over my life and see God's hand, His protection, His guiding hand, and His hand of deliverance. And friends, David, like all of us, faced troubles of various kinds. Now, it's not probably very often that your, your life is being pursued and threatened and somebody wants to kill you. But we do face troubles. These troubles that David had, they threatened to destroy him. And he refers to these times in his life where he was in grave danger with this very poetic description. Verses 5 and 6, he says, For the waves of death, these floodgates of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction, they terrified me. Such honest language. He says, the ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And he describes these events in his life as a raging flood or a trap for animals that would ensnare them. And he refers here to the forces of death and destruction. And it sounds kind of extreme, doesn't it? Kind of intense. And it is. I mean, these weren't simple problems. His life was on the line. But notice what he does. Because he knows who God is in his head, this is what he says. He says, I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry for help reached his ear. So in his desperation, he called and cried out to God. Now our experiences may not be as intense, but there are no times, no doubt times of chaos in our own lives. Things that completely overwhelm us, where sometimes we're maybe filled with so much anxiety or something, we just don't know what the next step is to do. How are we going to cope? How can we handle this? Because what we know to be true about God, we then cry out in prayer. Because we know that He is personal and that He is present. And we pray, believing Psalm 46, verse 1, to be true. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. And He hears our desperate cries. Friends, remember this about the God that David worshipped. That God is personal. And because he's personal, he cares for you. And he's present. And so he is with you. He's with you. God is not only powerful and, or sorry, personal and present, he's powerful and accessible. And so as we go on in chapter 22, we continue to understand, here's David's experience, is that he knew who God was, and so he cried out to him and uh, in his distress. And it's almost as if David, having now cried out to God, realizes that God, in fact, is far more powerful, far greater than the troubles that he faced. And so David writes some beautiful poetry here. And here in these words, David is attempting to describe for us using very poetic words and images and pictures that there is a powerful God in heaven, but he is not so powerful that we can't approach him. Isn't that beautiful? That here's this God who is 
powerful, but he's approachable. He's not a scary God. We sang this morning, it reminded me that when we sing holy, 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 there's always a little phrase in there that catches me every time because I just like, there's such a tension in it. God who is merciful and mighty. And it's a really good thing that he's both of those things, right? Because if he's just merciful, that means he's a, he's a kind God. That's great. He's a nice God. We like that. But he's somewhat impotent if he's not a mighty God. But he's a mighty God. If he was only a mighty God, that would be kind of scary too, wouldn't it? If, if he was just all-powerful and he could just do whatever he wanted without bringing to bear his own mercy? Just who he is? And the imagery here that David uses reminds us of the time of Moses and the exodus from Egypt. God's people having been rescued and delivered at the Red Sea and then worshiping at Mount Sinai. And these verses here, particularly verses 8 through 16, they're all about God. He's, David stops writing about my, my, my shield and my God and my Savior. He just talks about who God is. And there's a lot there, but there's this little phrase that jumped out at me that really caught my attention at the end of verse 8. It just says that he burned with anger. And we don't typically talk about an angry God. But why was he angry? It, He's not angry with David for crying out to him, like, oh man, here we go again, David. You're becoming a real pain always calling out to me. No, he's angry because of the reasons that David was crying out to him. David was his chosen king, and David was being threatened, and that didn't sit well with God, and the violence that was directed at David, David's enemies, the waves of death that David was facing, these were the things that, da- that God was angry about. And it is hard for us to wrap our mind around an angry God. I I struggle with it. I'm not sure I fully understand it. But if you think about it just for a moment, at least just on the surface, isn't it comforting to know that God cares enough about death and cancer and war and violence and suicide bombers to get angry about those things? Because what if he didn't care? then he wouldn't get angry. And he was angry enough to do something about it. Verse 10, he bent the heavens and came down. Isn't that a descriptive, beautiful image? He came down. In other words, when David prayed when he cried out. Not only did God hear him, he came and he did something about it. Because he can. Because he's able. Because he wants to. Because he is powerful and he is mighty. Friends, there's really only one simple response to a God like this. This is a God that is worth bending the knee to submitting to, to worship Him, that He alone is worthy of our worship, to give our lives to Him and seek to honor Him and live our lives in a way that's filled with obedience and trust, and we serve Him and we worship Him. 
And so it's not just we come to church for an hour and we worship, but 24-7 we worship with our lives. Our lives are a living sacrifice. That's what's holy and pleasing to God when we live according to His instructions and His direction. So we worship. Thirdly, God, I want to say, is our provider and our equipper. He's our provider and equipper, and we might want to add promise keeper, but that seemed like I was ripping off the song too much this morning, but he's our provider and equipper. And I think something that we should be reminded about this morning is simply this, that God chose David to be king. He called him. He had a purpose for him. He had a promise for him. You may remember in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, I'll refer specifically to verse 12 and 16, where there God promises to David, he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Because God had made this promise to David, God took good care of David. He delivered him from his enemies, all because he had a purpose for him. He had made a promise to him, and he wanted David to be a great king. And God did that all in the midst of the cultural context in which David lived. Because if you just stop and think about David's work that he now had as king... It was actually going to war. That, that was the iron age in which these events took place. This is what kings did then. They did this for their, for, because. That's what everybody did. And this is what God did. In the midst of that, he called and provided and equipped and resourced David to be a warrior. Isn't that strange? But David was so convinced of God's help. Because in verse 30 we read, this is what he then is back to the prayer. He's like, with you, with you God, he says, I can attack a barricade and with my God I can leap over a wall. Other translations say, instead of with you I can attack a barricade, it's like, I can crush a troop. I can crush an army. That wasn't this bravado of David because he says, with you. He didn't just start with, I can attack, I can crush anybody, I'm strong, I'm powerful. No, he says, with you because you're enabling me, you're helping me. And he basically says, no gated city, no city wall was ever safe because God helped David literally leap over those walls. And, and, and some translations say scale a wall. That makes it sound like it's, you know, not that Im- impressive. <laughs> you know, because the Hebrew word translator really talks about a leap or a jump. So can you picture this? They're in battle. And David feels so empowered by God that he can jump the wall. And David here is giving thanks to God for providing for him, for resourcing him. And it seems like the most unlikely work that God would ever be involved in 
But this was the time in which David lived. And David here, he's praying with exuberance and excitement. He's just totally energized. And you wonder, why? It just seems so unlikely. An unlikely calling, doesn't it? I was thinking about this, and and this is maybe the best way I could illustrate uh, this. Um, uh, Are there any hockey fans here this morning? Maybe a few? Yeah, I think you have to be over 40, though, to, to, under, to, to remember this. Did I say under 40? You have to be over 40. Because there was a guy, some of you may remember, his name was Stu Grimson. Is, is this going to connect with anybody? Okay, I see a few nodding heads. Good. Let me explain to you. Stu Grimson, the, his nickname was a play on his word, so his nickname was the Grim Reaper. <laughs> And he played in the NHL from 1989 to 2002, 13 seasons, seven different teams. I think he only had 39 points in 13 seasons, do the math. He wasn't known for his skill. He was known as an enforcer. He had over 2,000 penalty minutes in his NHL career. What's not known about him is that early in his professional career, he had already started playing in the NHL, He gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he was very outspoken in his faith. And he would often get interviewed. And what do you think was like the number one question people wanted to know? How do you reconcile your faith with what you do? You beat people up for a living. Right? And and when you think about it for a moment... um, now, the NHL has kind of changed, so there, there isn't this role, but every team in, in that era, in that season, in that cultural moment, had an enforcer to protect the little guys, to protect the skills guys. And so how do you think Stu Grimson answered that question? One time he said, well, Jesus wasn't a wimp. <laughs> Another time he said, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart. And working for the Lord, not for human masters. Isn't that awesome? In, in fact, another time he said, I never saw my faith and my role in conflict. In fact, my role was an extension of my faith as a defender and protector of the smaller skilled guys. Odd as it may sound, he says, it was the peace that comes from faith that allowed me to step into the fray and forge a career as an NHL enforcer. Friends, the point is this, that when we use what God has given to us, that God will empower us to use that, we can then bless and impact others. Now, I'm sure Stu Grimson's opponents weren't like really blessed, but they certainly were impacted by him physically, if you know what I mean. But I'm sure his smaller teammates appreciated what he did. He was one of the most well-loved and respected players on his team because of what he did. And he put himself in a vulnerable place because of what he did. And ultimately, his career ended because of uh, the concussion stuff and things that were happening. Friends, this is about having an understanding that our work, your work, what you have been called to do, it is something that God has called you to do. 
You are not doing what you're called to do by accident. This wasn't you in high school thinking, oh, I'd be really interested in this. I'd be good at this. Because God created you that way. Right? We're his workmanship. He gave us things to do in advance. He knew how your disposition was. He knew your skills. He knew your intellect. He knew that you might be skilled as a carpenter. He knew all of these things. And so he's provided the gifts and the skills and the passions to do it. And when we do it, we actually worship God with our work. We serve him by serving others. Eugene Peterson has a great quote about this. He says, work isn't a distraction from God. And somehow we compartmentalize our work from our faith. He says, but a working out of God in the world. Do you think that might help you tomorrow when you go to work and you step into whatever role you're stepped into, whatever stresses you're stepping into, to think, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to work out God in this world, in this situation. Friends, what has God called you to? Because what He's called you to, He will provide for you. And He will resource you. And He will empower you. And I know even in our midst, there's many teachers. And you're looking at this week maybe and and you feel all of the the chaos and confusion that Adam prayed about this morning. You're you're feeling some of the stresses and the anxieties of another school year with with COVID uh, clouds gathering. But you have a place. You have an opportunity to bring hope, to bring joy Uh, Kids that are feeling vulnerable, kids that are feeling confused, they need you. And with God, you got this. You can do it. I know I spoke with a nurse this week. You're tired, you're exhausted, you're frustrated by all of what's happening with our healthcare system. your calling is higher. You have a people to serve because of what God has provided to you and how He has equipped you. Lean on Him. He will give you what you need. If you go in on your own strength, yeah, it's exhausting. But you go into each shift saying, God, I need your strength because with you, I can leap a wall With you, I can do what you've called me to do. So whatever you do, do it as working for the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just the truth and the reality of your word that so often we can Just think about these things almost theoretically or intellectually without ever realizing that this is a lived experience every day. That who you are and what you have done becomes a present reality every day. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would press into our minds today a reminder, and that's all it is probably, a reminder for some, that you are personal and present, and so we can pray anytime, all the time. And that you, God, are powerful and accessible, and we worship you, we give our lives to serving you. And God, that you are our provider and our equipper. And to what you've called us, you will resource us for the work that you've called us to. And so, Father, may we as theologians not just think about these things, talk about these things, but that we would experience these things every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.